This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Time once again for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we help believers become thinkers and thinkers become believers. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And today's topic is the Trinity. Is God a Trinity or merely a unity? We'll find out today with our special guest, Enwell Hernandez. Just a reminder, though, Please check us out on our website, evidenceforfaith.com, where you can listen to past shows, and you can podcast us on iTunes by going to the podcast section and searching for Evidence for Faith. That's evidence, the number four, faith. Well, Kirk, we last week we were doing an, a debate on evolution, and we left that off a little short, so I think we're going to—I'd actually like to continue that maybe on the next broadcast, so that we can answer some more of the questions that Nick brought up in his email. What do you think? Sure. Since he sent us a three-page email. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little long, so we don't encourage uh, everybody to send us three pages of their thoughts, but uh, if you have a quick question or something, that'd be great. But Nick had a lot of points that he wanted to bring up, and we're happy to address all those points, which we did quite a few of them last week. This week, though, we're going to switch to a completely different topic, being as we are quickly approaching Christmas, and we're going to be thinking about Christ and the meaning of Jesus coming to earth. That always brings up the question of, is Jesus God? Is Jesus part of the deity? Is this idea that has been handed down through the centuries about the Trinity really true? Well, with us, we have an exciting person. I'm just so thrilled that I had the chance to meet this man. He is a double PhD. He has a PhD in biblical studies and a PhD in theology and apologetics. So I'd like to introduce our listeners to Enwell Hernandez. Enwell, thank you for coming. Good afternoon, Keith, and uh, and uh, all the radio listeners. For me, it's an honor, actually, to be here today. And uh, maybe you have made the comment uh, previously that I am a faithful listener to your uh, program. As a matter of fact, within the past three or four years, I have listened to the program on which I've learned many things uh, from uh, your team and uh, and the exposition of the themes that you bring along. Uh, It's funny because one day I was in my house in Puerto Rico, and I was looking for radio programs that speak about apology, uh, uh, as an apologist. And I came across uh, the website, I came across uh, iTunes, and I started listening. And since then, I've been just uh, hooked listening to the, the program. And uh, as a matter of fact, many of the uh, things that I was doing in college, uh, you helped me uh, develop many of the ideas and the works that I had to turn in. So I'm actually thrilled and honored to be here, uh, knowing that you have a great audience out there. And uh, the the, uh, 
a possibility to get exposed in order to proclaim the Word of God and the Deity and the Trinity, all these great themes uh, all around. Well, I, we're really thrilled to have you. I know you have a special interest in this area. In fact, you just recently spoke today at a church on this topic. As a matter of fact, I was in a church in uh, Cherry Hill, uh, and they invited me to bring a message with regards to the Trinity and also the uh, the certainty of why we celebrate Christmas. Uh, I did not get into the argument whether or not it is celebrated on the 25th or not. However, I did bring into attention that we do worship a person on which the Bible clearly explains to us that has a double nature, one divine and one uh, human. Uh, and that's pretty much what I brought in there. There were three conversions, so glory be to God, and I am Amen. very happy for that. Great. Well, and well, would you, I guess, just tell us a little bit more about yourself, a little bit about your background, just to get our listeners a little more familiar with you before we jump right into the topic of the Trinity. Sure. I, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, so if you find that I do have an accent, it's because of that. Uh, sometimes I have to formulate my thoughts in Spanish and translate them in English. So while I was doing the work in college, it was very difficult. I said I had to work twice as hard because I translate first and then I do my work in English. So basically my background is uh, I, I come from Puerto Rico, born and raised there. Uh, by fortune, I said the Lord brought me into New Jersey, not knowing that I was going to meet uh, the person that I was listening to on that radio. Uh, I began my uh, career as a pilot. I'm also an airline pilot, as uh, my good friend uh, Kevin Harold. Uh, and I did find also some time to prepare for the academics while I was doing all the flight. Uh, so it was a great experience, you know, to get involved in apologetics and also to serve the Lord. There was a point in time in my life where I did not serve the Lord, and everything that my parents and other people told me about this God that we worship did not make any sense. One point in time, my father said, you cannot understand this because you do not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit living within you. And I didn't understand until finally that God of eternity came into me and convinced me that, yes, there is a deity, there is a God, there is a purpose for life, and when he dwells within me by his Spirit, I came to know the truth. And that brought me from being an airline pilot to become also a pastor. So I pastored for three years uh, a small church in Puerto Rico. I did some missionary work for the glory of the Lord. And finally, I decided to uh, endeavor in the academics because I found that many times Christians don't have the ability to answer the questions for those who are asking the big questions. And uh, I, I, was, I was faced with that situation in my life when someone asked me a question I could not give an answer. So I came across a passage saying that we are to be prepared to give an answer for the reason that is within us. We should do this with meekness and respect. And that verse pierced my heart, and I endeavored into uh, seminary and, and later on into uh, uh, doctoral studies. So that's, in a nutshell, pretty much my, my background. Wonderful. Well, that's a great encouragement. What do you think, Kirk? So do you think you're going to uh, follow in his footsteps and get a couple PhDs? Uh, I don't know. It might be a little late in life for me now, but uh, <laughs> it's I'm great certainly for glad... retirement. Yeah, it's sure. It's a great thing to do in retirement. Yeah, I guess it would be, wouldn't it? If By I the way, the I don't know if our listeners or later our podcast listeners will notice there's a little bit of a difference in the sound quality because Skype apparently isn't working today. 
So we are using a speakerphone. How do things sound on your end, Kirk? Uh, it sounds okay. You sound a little radio-y from this end, but you're coming through loud and clear. All right. Well, then people will realize they're listening to the radio then. Another one of the wonders of modern technology. Absolutely. <laughs> well, one of the not-so-wondrous things about the modern world is that we get things happening like people publishing books like the Da Vinci Code that have a tremendous effect on the culture and convince a lot of people about some very bad theological ideas. And one of them that we want to cover is the attack on the doctrine of the Trinity. And in the Da Vinci Code and many of the other Unitarian cults and heresies that are out there, they tell us that Jesus Christ is not God the Son. He is not part of the deity, part of the Godhead, that he, many of them have a concept they call adoptionism, which means that God essentially adopted this terrific man, inspired him, gave him, that he became God's glory, his inspiration, and died for our sins as a essentially a perfected man and is not a deity. So that's what we want to address. And I've been to some of the websites that support this heresy. One of them is biblicalunitarianism.com, and they give this approach. I know I shared this with you, Enuel, or Enwell. Sorry, i got to think of the name and not think how it's spelled. <laughs> so Enwell is a a theologian, so I thought he would like to see some of the things that are out there. And they, one of the ways they attack the Trinity is by saying it's not historical. So there's no historical truth to the concept of the Trinity. They say that this was just foisted upon the Church by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., so 300 years after the ministry of Christ that this idea was pushed on to Christianity. So, and well, is that really the truth? Is that historically what happened? Is the Da Vinci Code right? You know, it's very interesting that when the book surfaced within many uh, libraries, a lot of people came uh, to churches asking for questions, and we found that we had to endeavor in doing many conferences and speech uh, in order to uh, defend the orthodox position of Christianity. And I, I will grant that uh, this author is a very good author, and I, when I read the book, uh, I was captivated by the way he writes. He, it's very interesting, so I, I will give him that, I'll grant him that. However, when he specified within the first few pages that all the details that he had in his book were actually historical facts, Right. When you endeavor in a study checking those facts, you find that whatever he told us about the deity of Christ and the history of Christianity, it's all false. If you go to scholarly sources or even historical secular sources, they disprove exactly what he was trying to prove. So therefore, uh, the book sold a lot of, uh, you know, sold a lot of... Uh, volumes. However, the information that it was portrayed in there was not true. Now, when he mentions that the deity of Christ surfaced pretty much or became into existence by the Council of Nicaea in the year 300, so basically uh, four centuries after the resurrection of our Lord, one has to ask the question, is this statement true? And when you look at the statement, you have to see what happened within the church 
only within the first few years did the apostles worship Jesus as divine. Did the church that surfaced in Palestine at that time, in Jerusalem, worship Jesus, Jesus as deity? And when we look at the information provided by scholars, we come to know for certain that there were some creeds, some formulas that were being developed as the church was being, uh, if I might say, as the church was evolving, if I might use that word. Mm-hmm. Expanding. Uh, expanding. There were, there were creeds and formulas and hymns that the church used in order to identify with their doctrinal doctrinal issues. So in many cases, we found studies, uh, and I, I'm going to use the study of Dr. Uh, Overman, on which he proved pretty much without any uh, doubt that there were these creeds that predate the Council of Nicaea, they predate secular sources, historical sources, such as uh, Tacitus or Athenagoras or uh, uh, Trajan, all these letters that we have in history. We have to know what happened within the Church in those few years. So these creeds and formulas are devotional patterns that the Church developed, and they pre-exist even the conversion of Paul. So when someone like uh, uh, the author of the Da Vinci Code mentions that this idea of divinity became to be in existence in the year 325, it's outrageous to think. It's simply not true because of the fact that these creeds, they pre-exist the councils, especially the Council of Nicaea. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are interviewing Enwell Hernandez, a double Ph.D. theologian who lives in South Jersey. And, Enwell, so can you give us a little bit of some of the evidence, then? What are some of the early quotes that we can give that prove that the Church really did believe, the early Church really did believe in the deity of Christ and this concept, even though perhaps they didn't use the word Trinity. Well, actually, let's address that. Is the fact that they didn't use the word Trinity, is that important? Uh, I wouldn't say that it's that important because of of that line of thought they bring. Uh, The word Trinity itself is not found in the the Bible. We cannot look for the word itself. Right. And Um, neither is the word Bible. Exactly. In the Bible. (laughs) And and that, you know, when they bring this uh, fallacy into the argument, one has to say, you know, the concept is what we're talking about. And when we read the Bible, we show that there is a concept of the Trinity in there, and we have to explain by using the different verses that we read, and these verses must have an explanation, otherwise they will be contradictory in nature, which is the argument that many Unitarians and other sects and cults make against uh, Christianity. They say that it is uh, a contradiction and it is not logical to believe in the Trinity. However, a contradiction will be if we state that we believe in one person and three persons in the same sense, in the same essence, and at the same time. But that is not what we're claiming. We're claiming that we believe in one essence manifested in three persons. There is one of one type and three in a different time. So therefore, logically and philosophically, it is not a contradiction. That's true. So it's only paradoxical. It seems as if there's some kind of contradiction going there, but it's not an actual contradiction. So it is not 
logically contradicted. There's nothing illogical about the concept of the Trinity. And of course, we know that the Church has held this view for 2,000 years, and there have been many, many brilliant theologians and philosophers down through the years who have clearly said this is not a contradiction, there's nothing illogical about it at all. You, you bring a very important point, Keith, and is this that we have to understand that the tradition that we have within Christianity predates many of these arguments. And we have more than 2,000 years of experience dealing with this. This is not something new. The Unitarians right. do not bring anything new to the table. The Church addressed these facts within their councils and within their history. So it's nothing new when people read uh, the Da Vinci Code and said, oh, we have just found something out. No. Historically, we have been dealing with this. It's just a matter of fact that many scholars will have to take into consideration that we have to bring all this information publicly. And the question is, will they allow us to bring this information publicly in order to contradict the falsehood of books like the Da Vinci Code? Right. So if you are somebody who has concerned about this and you think that maybe there really wasn't any early attestation of the deity of Christ or the Trinity, let me go over a few facts and quotations that I've collected for today's show. The early church fathers of the second century who talked about the deity of Christ and the Trinity were Justin Martyr, born 103, died 165, Tatian, 120 to 180, Theophilus, who was the first second century church father who actually used the word Trinity. So there we have that in the second century, not the fourth century Nicene Council. Then there's Athenagoras, born 133, and Irenaeus, who died in 202. So there's also outside sources, non-Christian sources. Let me read this. This was written by Lucian in his work called Philopatris. This is 160 A.D., and he's talking about the Christian profession, and he says, quote, The exalted God, Son of the Father, Spirit proceeding from the Father, one of three and three of one. Now, Lucian was a non-Christian. He did not make up that formulation. He was quoting that formulation in 160 A.D. Here also is from a work called The Shepherd of Hermas, which most scholars believe was written circa 90. So this is first century source. The Shepherd of Hermas was actually thought of by some early fathers as possibly being inspired by God. That's how important this work was to the early church. And here's a quote from that. The Son of God is more ancient than any created thing, so that he was present in council with his Father at the creation. So, obviously, not any kind of a normal man who was born to a virgin. This is the pre-existent Christ that the Shepherd of Hermas is talking about. Then we have another outside source. This is from Pliny, the historian, who in A.D. 112 wrote a letter to the emperor of Rome talking about the Christians, and he described them as worshiping Jesus as a god. So, again, an outside source. He had nothing to gain by saying that, you know, trying to foist upon people the idea. In fact, if anything, he would want to discourage such thinking. But, in fact, he reported what was actually happening. And then, archaeologically, we have the discovery of a third-century church in Israel, in the Valley of Megiddo, and there was an inscription written there at this church that says that someone, quote, offered the table for the God, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So, again, there's no doubt whatsoever 
that Jesus was worshipped as God, even though the use of the actual word Trinity was not used a lot. It began in the second century to describe this concept of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three being one, three who's in one what. So, so that's a little bit of the history, and we could go on. I've got several other quotes. Maybe if we have more time, we'll, we'll do some of that. But, and, well, maybe you could speak a little bit about the scriptural support, some verses maybe that talk about the fact that Jesus is God, or, or you know, where do these Unitarians, don't they see the, that the verses do say that Jesus is God? I'm going to lay a foundation before we, be, we begin to expound on that. And uh, as you mentioned, there is historical data that shows that the Church was worshiping Jesus as God that predates the Council of Nicaea. And you have just pointed out that within 70 to 80 years after the resurrection, the Church was acquiring or, or administering uh, the information about the deity of Christ. We're not saying by this that the Bible is correct, although I do believe it's correct, but I'm not using it in this sense because they were going to say, oh, you're begging the question because you're trying to prove the deity of Christ because of the Bible. No, I'm approaching this from strictly a historical perspective. Now, we have to also, not only from history, let the people that were bringing up the Church during that time speak to us. And we have to understand that even the most liberal scholars will date the letters of Paul within the year 50 of our era, mm -hmm. stating that, you know, there were basically 20 to 30 years from the resurrection of Jesus Christ to Paul's letter. Now, when the church was developing, they had to establish, as I mentioned before, creeds and confessions, because that's the way they agree upon the theology. But most of these formulae did not originate with the authors of the New Testament, and this is essential. They preceded them and find their origin in the primitive liturgical worship. And as I said before, there were found in confessions, statements, creeds, and hymns that basically constituted the earliest form of worship in the very first churches. Now, I can quote New Testament scholar Richard Longnecker. He says, These early Christian confessional materials had frequently been carried on under rubrics as hymns, prayers, formulas of faith, catechisms, teachings, liturgical formations, therefore a kerygma, or way of teaching, a proclamation. The word used is paradosis, which is a tradition, or didaction, which is teaching, or the homilia, which are the, the confessions. So they were all being developed within that time. And he adds, many confessions, and I quote, many confessions were like hymns, and many hymns were like creeds, end of quote. Now, Dr. Overman did a study about all these creeds and confessions, and he says, I quote, Given the compelling evidence of an Orthodox Christianity containing these pre-literally liturgical formulae, those who assert non-traditional perspective must bear the burden of producing comparable evidence from the first century that supports their position. And that's what we ask, and I, and I end the quote, that's what we ask people like Dan Brown or others that said that Christ was not being worshipped within the uh, first century. Now, these creeds or liturgies, they had a purpose. They were statements by which early Christians agree concerning the basis of their faith. Now, the question we have to ask is, what were they asserting? What were they agreeing upon? And the foundation of their agreement was the deity of Christ. That is, the devotions of the early church demonstrate that Jesus was worshipped as divine. And also that this attested by the Greek and the Aramic and the Hebrew words that used or used to describe Jesus. 
excuse me, the liturgical manuals, they present us with this information. Now, one of the key texts that we use for this, showing that it was a creed predating the letters of Paul, are many times when we find in the uh, <clears throat> in the Gospels and also within the, the framework of Paul, we find that he uses the word kurios. Right. And this is very important because when we looked at the Septuagint, which preceded the New Testament, those Hebrews were writing the word kurios in the place where they had the word Yahweh, or where the Tetragrammaton was found. So a Jew which is monotheistic in thought, was using the word Yahweh, tra- uh, making a tra- uh, uh, translation into their language, Greek at that time, by using the word kudios. Now, in First Peter 3.15, this is one of the foundational uh, texts that we have. It says, But in your heart sanctify Christ as Lord. And when we look at even the Septuagint, this is a translation, or they brought this text from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, it says that we are to sanctify Yahweh as our Lord. And over here, Peter, within a few years of the resurrection, is telling us the same thing that it was attributed to Yahweh is attributed to Jesus Christ. Sanctify Jesus as what? As Yahweh, as Lord. Therefore, we have a very early evidence in one of many texts of the Church worshiping Jesus as deity. So some of the Unitarians will, one of the approaches they take when they're talking with Christians and they're trying to convert them and get them to join with their Unitarian beliefs is they'll say, you know, that concept of the Trinity, that is just a a late doctrine and there's no reason you need to believe it. The Bible doesn't say you have to believe in the Trinity. So is that true? As a Christian, can we reject the Trinity? Uh, I would say absolutely not. It's foundational to our faith. If you want to be called a Christian, you have to adhere to the foundational belief of the Trinity. Now, when you mention the word reason, is it reasonable to believe in the Trinity? Now, uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias has made a very good example of this, and he explains that when the authors of the New Testament were writing, they knew what the difference between three and one is. The fisherman knows what a difference between three and one is, and it's not so much that we are trying to explain the Trinity within the Godhead rather than how do we explain it. So if you have a concept on the effect, that means that the cause must be the one who produces that effect. Okay. And why do I say this? Well, when we are in on the earth, we speak like this. We use, use a plurality of language by saying, for example, we are one nation, but we are one nation comprised of what? Of many people. Mm-hmm. Even in our dollars, out of many, one. It says, e pluribus unum. Right. Out of many, one. So when we're talking about a collective of person, we can still use Unitarian language, yet we are emphasizing or expressing a plurality within that. So if we have the effect on which we can talk about a plurality without a unity, Rabbi Zacharias goes far as far back as with the philosopher. Well, we have all these unities. We have earth, fire, uh, water, and, and, uh, and, and the other one. And he said, well, these are four... Uh, four separate entities. We have to find one entity, and he goes right. for the quintessence. That's right. And he unites that. 
even our word, our word university, it's to find unity in diversity. So when you have those sections on the effect, the only way where you can explain that is if the cause itself had that. Now, when we explain or when we talk about a being like God, we have to understand that with every dimension, you add complexity. Therefore, if you have a line, straight line, that's one dimension. If you add another dimension, you get a figure. If you add a third dimension, then you get an object. So therefore, when you go from one being who is all eternal, all powerful, he's the cause of his own existence, the complexity that we find in this being has to give us the information of why we can explain the Trinity, even with our limitations. There is a complexity within the unity of the Trinity, and only God can explain that. When we say that God was love, the question is, whom did he love? Right. Now, our Muslim friends, they say that God is so transcendent and unique in the sense that he's mono or only one God, the same thing as our Unitarian friends. But the question we have to ask, in order to be proper love, you have to have a subject and an object of that love. The question is, whom was God loving in that sense? So only in the plurality of the unity and the consistence of the unity, you can have love expressed to the Father and the Father to the Son and the Son to the Holy Spirit, yet this plurality of persons are one essence that we call God. So therefore, reason itself explains to us that it is logical, not illogical, to believe in the Trinity. And we can, you know, expound on this if we wish. Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. We're speaking with Enwell Hernandez, who is a theologian, and we're speaking to him about the deity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. So, Enwell, you were talking about the explanatory power of the concept of the Trinity, and you said that philosophers have argued down through the centuries about how in the universe can there be so much diversity, there needs to be some kind of unity, and but if there is unity, how could there then be diversity? And so you explained that this concept of the Trinity explains so much that puzzled philosophers for centuries as to how could the universe exist as diversity and unity, and it is because the nature of God itself is a unity and a diversity. And you also brought up about love. So that is one thing that I think is so important about this idea of Trinity. Without the Trinity, would it make sense to say that God, before the creation of the earth, was lonely? That brings a, a very important question that many theologians endeavor in their studies. If there was a being that existed in eternity, then if it was a mono, as they said, Unitarian type of being, that means that he had to create something in order to satisfy that need, in order to express that love. That will be an incomplete God, if I might call it. However, That's right. by explaining the concept of the unity within the triune God, we can explain or give an answer to this concept. Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Father, and these three persons are one in essence, which is God. Now, many Unitarians and uh, people from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they said, no, but you are worshiping three gods. You're worshiping three persons. We're not saying, no, we're not worshiping three persons. We're worshiping one God manifested in three persons. Is one what and three who's. That's right. It's absolutely non-contradictory. So this really goes to a doctrine of God called God's or a 
aspect of God called God's aseity, and that is that God doesn't need anything. But if God is, as described in the Bible, a God of love, a God of communication, a personal God, how is it possible for him to love and communicate when there's no one else around? Who was he communicating from uh, eternity? Who was he loving from eternity? See, these are questions that, on a Unitarian position, you are not able to answer. As a matter of fact, if you try to answer, you will contradict yourself. So there is an explanatory power by the process of explaining the triune God, and many of the Bible verses, which they also read, many of the Jehovah's Witnesses and many of the Unitarians, they read these verses, and they're the only explanatory power, it's the being of the Trinity in order to explain it. When God said that he was going to raise Jesus from the dead, we know that he's talking about God the Father. But then, when we go to the book of Romans, for example, and I believe it's chapter 8, verse 11, it says that the Spirit was the one that raised Jesus from the dead. And yet Jesus, when he was talking in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it. Right. So the question is, who brought Jesus out to out of the resurre- out into the resurrection? Who gave him life on that? The Father said he did it. The Spirit said he did it. And Jesus said he did it. Now, if you are a Unitarian, that will be contradictory. But if you're a Trinitarian, it gives you the explanatory power about the resurrection that these three persons were involved in the process of the resurrection. So we have the explanatory power philosophically about the existence and nature of the universe. It's explanatory power about the creation. It's explanatory power about the resurrection. But what about the atonement? How does it make sense in an adoptionist, Unitarian viewpoint? They believe that God took a man and put the punishment of the world upon this man. How is that a just God? How can God punish a third party? If I sin against God, it's a sin against the most holy being that there is. Now, is that holy being in his justice going to grab a third party and say, you know what, Keith, I'm not going to make you pay for this sin. I'm going to put all the punishment on this third person. It makes no sense at all. Let's say, and well, that you, when you drove over here today, you you crashed into my car, and you damaged my car. Now, it's possible for me to forgive you of that damage that you did, right? But would it be right for me to then go to our friend, our mutual friend, Kevin Harold, and for me to say, Kevin, you pay for this car because I've forgiven Enwell? Would that be just? That will be absolutely unjust. Right. But what if I forgive you and then I pay for the damage? Is that just? That will, that will do justice, yes. Because so you only the... God right. can, for when he forgives us of our sins, only he can pay the penalty or it would be unjust. And talking about the penalty, we have to understand one thing. Some people say that this penalty that God brought upon his son was so unjust because how can a temporal being pay for the sins of eternity? And I was, I was talking with you, Keith, this concept is not far away from, from where we at. There are many times where people commit sins and atrocities against other people, and yet the atrocity will be within the temporal space of time. Let us say that someone takes a little girl and rapes her. That is extremely hideous. That's a very hideous sin. However, the act itself might have lasted 15, 20 minutes, and yet we put that person in jail, 
And if we say that it's just, put him in jail, maybe for a lifetime. If we were to put the person in jail for 15 minutes just because the sin itself lasted for 15 minutes, would that do justice? Not at all. Not at all. And the reason being for is that when you commit a fault, you have to see the sin that you committed and also to whom the sin was committed against. Therefore, if the person whom the sin committed against has a moral value, I, let's say I, can, I hit this table. Have I committed a sin against this table? No, because right. the moral value of the table is not the same as if I went and I punched you. You have more value morally, intrinsically, because why? You are created in the image of God. Therefore, the value has to be taken into account also. So then when we sin against a person, that is something very bad. But what about when we sin against the being who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-just? That means that every sin against him, the magnitude of that sin, it's extremely hideous, extremely bad. So therefore, what do we need in order to be just or to atone for that sin? Only an eternal being can pay for that. Because I could pay, but I will be temporal. Therefore, since God is eternal, there will be some time in there in which the atonement was not sufficient. So even if the Christian Church did not have this doctrine of the Trinity, we would need to invent it in order to explain what we're talking about in salvation. So it, the concept of the Trinity has to be there. It's the only way that we can understand that we could possibly have been saved. We needed, from the very beginning, when Adam sinned, we needed a God-man to bridge the gap between God and man. That is where many uh, Unitarians and many sects, they don't agree that there was a nature of a human being. It had to be a human to atone for a human, yet it had to be God in order to be just for the, uh, the, uh, the hideous crimes that were committed. And they, many times, they point out to a Bible verse in, for example, the Gospel of John, and the Unitarians, they use this uh, gospel to prove that there was no deity, there was no trinity, and, and there was no unity within the Godhead. Many Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim and say, when you read that text, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and they say, and the Word was a God, separating the eternal God from this exalted being. In the case of the Unitarians, they say that this being was an agent of God on which he became flesh. However, when we exegete that text, it totally proves them wrong. Even if we do a, a small theological exegesis of that text, actually it brings favor into our position and not to their position. If we read that verse, especially in Greek, and I'm going to take the liberty here to expound a little bit on that, we read, in the beginning was the word, en arche en hologos, and the word was with God, kai hologos en prostonteon, and the word was God. They say that they cannot do this, or that we cannot translate this, because of something technical they call the anarthrous predicate noun. Okay. Now, there is a rule on which we translate this verse correctly, not incorrectly. Many Unitarians, even in their website, they say that on the last part of the verse, this verse is divided into three clauses. On the last part of the verse, they say that it cannot be translated and the word was God. 
I will say that they're absolutely wrong. W-R-O-N-G with the grammatical context. Any Greek uh, student, first-year student, knows that there is a rule for interpretation, especially that one. And it says that in a sentence in which the copula is expressed, a definite predicate nominative has the article. In this case... Logos, hall logos, and when it follows the verb, it does not have the article when it precedes the verb. So theos does not have the definite article. It doesn't need it. In Greek, there's no indefinite article. So therefore, that prologue of John gives us a very strong evidence for the case that God and the Word, which was explained later on in verse 14 and verse 18, the Word is Jesus Christ, this Word and God were so united in such a way that when we read even in verse 14, when it says, Kai Hologos Sodex Eganeto, and it tells that He became flesh, when we go and look at the Greek, and explain to us that kai hologos prostonteon, and the verb was with God, that word pros is very important in the Greek. There are three words to explain the uh, the unity. You can say there's sun. Sun, a word in Greek, is where we get the word synagogue or synchronized. All right. And then you have the word meta. Meta right now is like you and I. We're next to each other. But when we use pros, like John used in here, he is saying something very important. It's process where we get the word prosneo, uh, prosneo, which is prospon, which is face. So this word was face to face with God. Now the question is, how do we explain this when in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says that no human flesh has ever seen the Father? Right. The only explanatory power that we have is that this word was equal to God. So he saw the manifestation of the glory of God the Father because they, in essence, are one. So the passage in John, when you exegete it, it gives a very good explanatory reason for the uh, our faith. And we can even go deeper into that by using the word ain, which was the word was. It gives us also the nature of divinity and the pre-existence of the Lord, all found within that verse where many Unitarians use to disprove, they say, the position that God is three persons manifested in oneness. So, Enwell, what do you think when you see these websites and they seem to be so scholarly and they have all kinds of references and they're talking about the Greek meaning of the words and they're trying to convince people that Jesus, that the, that the New Testament never calls Jesus God? What do you think of their scholarship? What do you think of... That's one of the reasons why I endeavor beyond the academics, because I've received many of those arguments, and I was saying, but there's have to be something more than that. And oftentimes they quote many scholars, but they quote those scholars only halfway. Mm. And when you look at the information and you search what they're saying, they're actually telling you half the truth. For example, Daniel Wallace, he's a New Testament scholar, and yes, he talks about this uh, law of uh, translating the verbs and the predicates, which is called the Caldwell's Law. So Daniel Wallace explains that, yeah, there are some cases where the unauthorized predicate now will not have the definite article, but then they don't tell you what comes up after that. Okay. Even... Uh, Daniel Wallace will explain to you that the same passage in John 14, if you translate it the way they have it in different verses, it will not make sense. For example, when it says that the Word became flesh, if you use, which is an anarthrous predicate noun also in there, if you use their uh, idea, it will say that the flesh became God. 
because they're interchangeable by the way they explain it. But when you read scholars like Daniel Wallace, which they quote, they only quote it halfway. A.T. Robertson, many Jehovah's Witnesses quote him saying that they, he gives evidence for what they're saying. But when you read down in the next very paragraph, A.T. Right. Robertson tells them that they are lying. Bruce Metzger says that the worst translation for the Unitarians, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses, was the New World Translation, especially talking about John 1.1. Yet, it is quoted in many Unitarian cycles saying that he proved their position. But I think that people have to take what they're saying, look into it, and see what the scholar actually said. So we have about four minutes left, Dr. Hernandez. Can you, if you were talking to a young person who was getting involved in a Unitarian church, what would you tell them to kind of wrap up this talk today? What would you tell them to try to convince them that they're going down the wrong road? There is a person that has manifested himself, and he pre-existed, and this person is Jesus Christ. The love that he can show for every person, the love that he can show for every sinner, as long as the person recognizes and becomes humble into him, he has the part to forgive their sins. Many people, and I, I was in their shoes also, when I was searching for the truth, you have to look within the pages of the Bible and ask for the Lord to give you the true definition of everything. And yet we have teachers that are going to teach us many things. Look into the information and see if what they're saying is true. And he did say that it was he who would forgive their sins. Absolutely. Thereby implying that he is God. And there's a verse that says, what Jesus says, Unless you believe that I am, ego eimi, you will die in your sins. So what did he mean by that? What is this ego eimi? He The, the ego eimi is a, it's a, a verb of uh, pre-existent. As a matter of fact, in the prologue of John, the word ain is there is the imperfect tense of that verse that I am, or I am, which is the same words used by Yahweh in the Old Testament. Moses said, uh, who should I say has brought me forth? And he said, tell him that I am the self-existent, the all-powerful. And this same verb, Jesus applies it to him. And saying that before Abraham was, I am. In other words, claiming divinity and the power that only Yahweh has, on which even the Pharisees at that time knew what he was saying, and they got stones to uh, stone him because he was saying that being equal to God, and they were going to kill him by blasphemy charges. Because they knew that he was claiming to be God. God, exactly. Well, and well, it has been a wonderful to have you on the show. We really are thrilled. I really didn't know that story. I knew that you said you had heard the radio show in Puerto Rico, but I didn't know you were a regular listener. So it's just a thrill to have you here. And I hope to have you on the show many more times. So, Kirk, any final thoughts? Oh, yeah, I agree. It was a wonderful show. I'm, I'm just mesmerized sitting here listening uh, to Mr. Hernandez, and I uh, really appreciate his insight into the uh, the Trinity. I've heard some of the material before, but he kind of fleshed it out a little more than what I've even heard, and it's it's just amazing to hear that. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. Send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. And if you would, please mention the call letters of the station that you listen to us on, or if you listen on podcasts, mention that. And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was 